Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Genesis chapter 34. Today we're going to look at defiling honor. Defiling honor. Where is justice and truth? And I'll begin with a question this morning. Questions, I think, kind of help us frame our mind and our attention in the right direction. Have you encountered anything recently that raised righteous indignation in you? I don't know. I, don't, I may need to give you a minute to think about these things or give you a minute to allow the list to finish crossing your mind, right? Like a, a moment when you felt a sense of duty even, strongly to defend honor or to defend justice in responding. Have you had any moments like that later? Let, let, me, let me set the record straight because some of you are hesitant to ask because you feel like I might be setting you up. In some ways, I am. But in other ways, Psalm 97.10 reminds us, the one who loves the Lord will hate evil. Let's not forget that. Today's message could have been entitled, Overwhelmed by Injustice. Because there will be a traumatic amount in this passage. And how it would resonate with so much in our world today. However, that would completely miss the point by manifesting the issue of this passage, though not getting to the point of this passage. You see, we are all prone to believe that we have the last and final word on identifying injustice. Do we not? I mean, that's, a, that's the sense within us that is conjured up in those moments. But far too often, we're only repeating, we're only multiplying and compounding injustice in the way that we respond. My prayer today is pretty simple, but not easy. That we would all walk away today confronted by our own unrighteousness, juxtaposed against the truth of God's righteousness, not forgetting the certainty of His truth and the faithfulness of His promise, so that we would find comfort only by the kindness of his gracious invitation for forgiveness and for cleansing. And that we would trust his promise of justice in all things. Today I want you to see that Christians live to honor the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who is just. And, the just, and he justifies by faith all who believe in him. Let's go to Genesis 34, and I'm going to begin reading verses 1 through 4. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor 
saying, get me this girl for my wife. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Friends, I don't know if this passage could get much worse, but it will. Let me pause for a moment and back up a little bit. God told Jacob in the previous chapter to go to Canaan. And where we find him is in Succoth or Shechem, if you will. And it helps us to understand the context of where they are in order to understand what is transpiring here. At the end of Genesis chapter 33, Jacob tells Esau that he is headed to Seir. And if you look on the map, you'll find Succoth is in the opposite direction. One commentator, Derek Kidner, helps us here in understanding the context within which we are considering it today when he says this, Succoth was a backward step both geographically and spiritually for Jacob. For it offered Jacob the attractions of a compromise. His summons was to Bethel. But Shechem, about a day's journey short of it, stood attractively at the crossroads of trade. He was called to be a stranger and pilgrim. But while buying his own plot of land there, he could argue that it was within his promised borders. It was disobedient nonetheless, and his pious act of rearing an altar and claiming his new name of Israel could not disguise the fact. You see, after such a big chapter in Genesis 33, where we see the reconciliation, the reunion of Jacob and Esau, where Jacob has finally confessed and repented of his fear before God and submitted himself to God and faces Esau and finds that God's been working in Esau's heart as well. And they come together, even at the very end of that, what we see is that there is a moment of lapse at the beginning of Genesis 34. Some time has passed, there's no doubt. And Jacob had gone mostly in the way that God commanded but not fully. This is important, friends, because everything we encounter in Genesis chapter 34 occurs within this context. There was a majority allegiance to God by Jacob that led him into a partial obedience. Technically, he was within the borders of Canaan, but he was not where God had told him to go. And partial obedience always leads to full disobedience. That's the context within which we begin this chapter in Genesis 34. And we're introduced to this young lady by the name of Dinah, Jacob's daughter by Leah, his first wife, right? And it tells us that Dinah goes out to see the women of the land, You see, what we understand from what it tells us about Dinah's intent here is that it was not simply to observe or even to get to know, but her desire was to indulge and enjoy the practices of the foreign women, which was explicitly forbidden for them. 
You see, Dinah intended to partake in the practices of foreign women. But in that instant, she became subject to a universal evil against women. A very important lesson in life that I'm sure most of our mothers have taught us and told us at least at some point in our life is that no matter what your intention, you cannot control nor governor others' motivations. Be careful you're not in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that's what happened to Dinah, in the wrong place at the wrong time. Shechem, he was the prince of the land. And look at the progression that we learn here. He saw her, he seized her, he lay with her, he humiliated her. And then it tells us in verse 3 that all of a sudden his soul was drawn to Dinah. That word for drawn there is a word that means to cling or to cleave. And we as Christians can say of that absolutely he was. He was drawn to her because we know that the very design of God for sexual intercourse by his creation was to do this very thing, was to consummate the union of man and woman into one. And so though unrighteously and disorderedly, Shechem is feeling the reality of the creator in his wicked act, though wanting it for his own glory. Friends, if you want an accurate definition of all sin and how we get ourselves into it, this could not be any clearer for us. To see what is God's, to seize it for ourselves, to violate God's gift that is good and his intentions for us, whether in what we do or what we do not do, and to humiliate through it. He took it for his glory. It says he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. Shechem wanted to marry her. It's hard to believe verse 4 after you've read verses 1 through 3, is it not? Why? Because you shouldn't give in to the deception of verse 4 because of verses 1 through 3. Look at verse 5 with me though. In verses 5 through 12, I'm just going to read 5, 6, and 7. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. And so it tells us when Jacob heard what had happened, he held his peace until his sons could return. And Hamor at the same time came to Jacob to speak to him about marriage between Dinah and his son Shechem. And about the same time, Jacob's sons arrived who had already heard out in the field. And let's just say they weren't holding their peace as well as Jacob was. 
They were indignant and they were hotly angry at what had been done. And Hamor proposes that Dinah now marry Shechem and, and that they go beyond that, but that they give their sons and their daughters in marry and that the two nations intermarry with one another. Because it'll not only be good for their sons and their daughters, but it'll be good for commerce and it'll be good for trade. It'll be good for the prosperity of both families. And Shechem, who is still overcome and overconfident with his love-struck state, quote, unquote, offers to pay any bride price and gift that they require. Let me point out one other aspect about sin and its pleasure for us. When we indulge and we are deceived by our indulgence, we also become unable to exercise discernment that exposes us to more evil. Look at verses 13 through 17. Just reading verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. You see, the sons of Jacob answer deceitfully because they intend to exact revenge for their sister. And so they make an agreement. It's an agreement that is explicitly counter to the command of God for them not to intermarry with the people of the land. But they do it on one condition, that all males be circumcised. And so Hamor and Shechem, they're pleased. And they don't delay with this. It's easy when you commit someone else's resources for your benefit and your own desire, is it not? Because Shechem was still inebriated with love. Or at least what he called love. And then verses 18 through 24 tells us, and I'll read 18 and 19. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will they agree. And they share the condition. You see here, Hamor and Shechem return to the city gates and they convince all the men of their city that they're here for peace. And that, that this agreement will be beneficial for everyone. There's only one simple condition by which they must Agree, And it tells us that all the men of Shechem, the name of the city, went out and were circumcised. And so we see in verse 25 through the remainder of the chapter, on the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. 
They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the field and in the city. All their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. And so on the third day, it says, Simeon and Levi attacked the city, killed all the men, and rescued Dinah. And then behind the first two brothers, the remainder of the brothers came, looted everything, took all the women and children, the livestock, and the possessions for themselves. And the scene we have here, at its climax, and its focus of the whole passage, is one of complete destruction, decimation, and devastation. And why? Vengeance. Ire raised to a heated level, fully justified by their religious, the most sacred of their religious practice. Verses 30 and 31, Jacob confronts Simeon and Levi and he rebukes them sharply. And here's what he says to them. He says that you've brought trouble on me by your actions. You've made me stink among the people of the land. You see, Jacob was worried about the backlash that it would bring upon him. But it says in verse 31 that his sons remained indignant and they justified their actions on their moral principle. Friends, what begins by a morally deplorable evil exacerbates to a morally abhorrent devastation. And as one commentator says, there is ostensibly nothing about chapter 34 that is commendable. Nothing about the chapter that is commendable. Now, I don't know of anyone who, when faced with similar situations, would disagree with the disposition of Jacob's sons. And I'm not even sure it would be honorable to say that you did disagree with their disposition. But man's assessment of moral justice is always skewed by our depraved nature. I'm not saying we cannot achieve moral justice. I am saying we cannot achieve it by our own standards and should not by our own will or actions. You see, this is a war of morality that begins with an outrage and an indignation over a violent, grievous evil of defiled honor. And it culminates in a compounded carnage by vengeance for that very honor. How then do we seek justice and truth in defense of honor? is where this passage leads us. It it causes us to ask questions of our own life. When our heated ire rises, when our righteous indignation, our moral outrage rises up within us, the question becomes, whose honor will we defend? And will honor be defiled in our response? I want to Follow the path of three questions that guide us to seek justice by truth for true 
honor from this passage. And may these questions guide us to do the same in every area of our life. Question number one is this, where is justice, honor, and truth in all of this? Where is it? And I think the best way to to approach this question is by tracing three themes of contrast in this passage. The first theme is honor versus abuse, which is the most violent of themes that we see immediately presented to us when Shechem dishonors Dinah in the most grievous of ways, in the most grievous of evils. And then he, he tries to rectify the situation by imposing his honor to demand her hand in marriage. Later, we encounter again with the sons of Jacob as, def- as they defend Dinah's defilement by murder. And not only small murder, but catastrophic of the whole town. And Jacob responds to the carnage by simply saying, you brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. Yes, Father, thank you for staying focused on the right things at the right time. You see, the sons of Jacob dishonored their father by exacting vengeance. There's truth and there's deception in Jacob's response. For his sons dishonored their father by exacting vengeance unrighteously in defense of his name. And so this first theme of honor versus abuse, it just simply says every honor imaginable was defiled in this story. And it was defiled in the most abusive of manners. But most of all, the greatest honor defiled was the honor of God. The honor of God. Why? Because the sons of Jacob took the most sacred sign of their covenant with God. The distinction that marked them as God's people and used that to defile the honor of God's name. You want to know why people get disillusioned with the church? You want to know why people get kind of uh, 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 disenfranchised with God? Because when God's people use God's means and God's ways and God's word in an act out of their own moral outrage to do greater damage against people because of their own anger, that's what causes that. That's what we see in this honor versus abuse theme. The second theme we see is the theme of truth versus deception. Truth versus deception. Jacob's sons deceive Hamor and Shechem. Now, there was other deception, mostly carried out by violence, but explicitly with Jacob's sons, they manipulated and coerced in order to deceive which is always bearing false testimony and false witness. And the second theme of truth versus deception leads to the third of fear versus vengeance. Fear versus vengeance. Where do we see this? We see the response of fear in the life of Jacob. We've already seen him 
ruled by fear, fear broken in him in full submission to the Lord, but it rearing its ugly head yet again in a different way, in a different manner. And yet his sons, having enough of their dad's passivity, acting out in an equally sinful way through vengeance. You see, friends, justifying deception and rationalizing vengeance to defend honor always produces greater and compounded evil. Did you hear that? Justifying deception and rationalizing vengeance to defend our honor always produces a greater and a compounded evil. Why? Because of the way we define our morality. And let me ask this, do any of these themes sound familiar to us today in our world? They're all familiar. Do you know why? Because they are familiar to humanity, not just to the generation in which we live. That's why one generation looks at the faults of the previous generation, which are always better viewed in the past, and aims to correct them totally blind and deceived by their own actions, which will only be exposed by the next generation. There's a second question, though. In order to trace these themes, it leads us here in clarity of our search, and that is this. Who or what is right here? Who or what is right here? I mean, if God is righteous, then where is righteousness in his word here? And in order to to pursue this question for clarity, we need to consider the characters and their motivations. And we're asking who is right here? Here's Dinah. She is the daughter of a woman who was never loved by her husband. We've already seen this over the past number of chapters. Leah lived her whole life with a void within her, seeking to bring love and acceptance from her husband. And here is her one daughter who grows up in this shadow and experiences this pattern in her life and learns how to live based off the absence of love from the one person that God put in her life to love her most. Surely she knew that same void of love and acceptance. And it created within her a longing that drove her into the city to experience what it seemed like they had that she had never had. And then we see Shechem, privileged little prince that he is. Even got a city named after him. Isn't he precious? Shechem was accustomed to taking and demanding whatever he wanted for his honor. That's That's the way he lived his life. And immediately we're introduced to his father, Hamor the Hittite, who is responsible for creating this little Shechem prince monster. Why? Because he's the one that went and took what Shechem demanded. And here we find him still feeding that little monster. Because we learn that Shechem was the most honored in all the land. Don't think there's not a war for honor here, friends. Anytime someone's honor is unjustifiably and unrighteously stripped from them, which honor is the meaning of Dinah's name. And it was taken by the one who was most honored on the earth. 
There is a war of morality and it is a war over who will get honor here. And here's Jacob who has taken his new name of Israel that God gave him and is living under the blessing of God with the new identity that God gave to him, claiming to fully enjoy it in the land, but not quite where God had told him to go. He had exposed his family to all of this because he stayed where he should not have been. But it seemed to be working out okay, even offering some signs of prosperity in the midst of it. And there's Jacob's sons, especially Simeon and Levi, who authorized themselves as judge, jury, and executioner. Who's right here? The better way is to say this, no one is innocent. Only varying degrees of responsibility and guilt. And once again, I beckon upon a commentator to simply acknowledge there are no heroes in this story. None. No one was right. Not in motivation, not in justification, nor in action. Everyone is guilty. Though most of us could say today, well, I've never raped or murdered anyone. No one would claim to say, I am righteous. And the true evil exacted here, though not manifested to the same extent or degree, is the same unrighteousness in the heart of every person. How do we know this? God's word teaches us this. In the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 23, it tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I pray this story is coming uncomfortably relevant to us right now. Because it should be. And this leads us to question three. In a war of morality when no one seems right, what do we do to pursue justice, truth, and honor? You see, friends, in light of the truth of Romans 3.23, which I hold to be the final bastion that's held by people before they release themselves to salvation and trust in God. Why? Because it's one thing to believe that you would be loved or could be loved, but releasing self as Lord on the throne and giving up self-honor is that last bastion of stronghold in every life because of this. And in this war, so often we say, And there is a sense in which it is right to say, but I have never. But where we come through or come to through this story is to bring us not whether we are right before other men, but whether we are right before God. And what the gospel calls us to is not to compare ourselves to other people. There will always be those who have done far greater atrocities to justify us where we are. And there will always be those who seem to be a little better at righteousness than we are. 
and we manage this in-between gray area with God based on the way we see ourselves with other people, this is the war of morality. The problem is we offer our rationale of it to the one that's not judging only morality, but the righteousness as its foundation and base. And so in this war of morality, when no one seems right, what do we do to pursue justice, truth, and honor? You see, victory in this war will never be won by a person's morality And it will never surely be won by one person's morality alone over another. And though you might say, I've never done what they did, or I'm not as bad as Jesus says, that's not the standard before God. He is the standard before God. He teaches this in very practical, moral ways. In the Gospels, Matthew chapter 5, he says, you've said that it is wrong to to commit adultery with another woman I tell you to look at her lustfully and your heart is to commit adultery that changes the scale friends he also says in Mark chapter 7 that that we're defiled because of sin and because of sin it is what comes out of us that makes us unclean not what goes in us say how does this apply It's not the defilement of Dinah that justifies the evil of her brothers or of her father, nor of Shechem, nor his father. There's a far deeper evil that is seated in them. And anytime we trust in our higher morality, it's only another strike in the same war that is useless for us to fight. The answer to this question is also given in the following verses of Romans chapter 3, verses 24 through 26. For the same one who has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, hear me, are also justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Friends, God is the only one who is right. And he is right because he put forth Jesus. That's what propitiation means. As a payment for sin. From the most inconsiderable of sins. Things that we don't think of are that great of an issue. To the most heinous. Things that we have trouble reconciling in our mind that they could be forgiven. And it tells us that all sin was laid on Jesus on the cross and was atoned by his payment of his blood for the one who believes. Jesus was crucified to remove sin's curse from you. God is the only one who will work it out so that all will be 
right. The question is, have you believed in Jesus Christ? And are you believing in Jesus Christ in the face of those things that raise your moral righteousness to its most heated point. When we repent of sin and walk in obedience to Jesus and his word, we look to God to make all things right. When we demand honor or when we exact vengeance, we deny and reject Jesus's work on the cross. Why it is so dangerous for us and and deceptive for us as Christians because we actually bear false witness against Jesus Christ. When we justify our actions by our own morality, fear that ignores injustice forsakes honor and it denies justice by overlooking injustice for self-preservation. That's what Jacob did. Vengeance in any form denies justice and forsakes true honor by taking matters into one's own hand and committing injustice. That's what Shechem and Hamor did because they were after their own honor and not God. So they took vengeance where honor was wanted but not had. And so it was with Jacob's sons whose moral outrage rose them to defend an honor that had been stripped from their sister. Both fear and vengeance are faith absent. One denies God, the other rejects him. And in a world where grievous injustice abounds and is compounding at a head-spinning rate, it is God who guards his covenant of grace, not man. That's why we can study the fathers of our faith and not find our faith in them, but in him who is the one who is working through them. That's why we must look at people today not as idols to give to, some, give us, give to us something we believe we deserve, but to see God working and carrying forth his redemptive mission in the world, no matter how strongly indignant or hotly angered one may be, taking pleasure in earthly honor is as vain a glory as vengeance exacted to defend it. However, your temptation may lie to you to deceive you, they are both unrighteousness displayed. For the Lord is the one who knows, sees, hears, and cares. But most importantly, the Lord is the one who has showed that he is righteous in Jesus Christ. Hating sin. Loving sinners. Trusting in Jesus does not mean we turn a blind eye to injustice. It does mean we rest in God's perfect justice for all things at all time. You see, we honor Jesus when we ask what is loving, what is truthful, and by faith we follow him to pursue justice, not allowing our own fear to cause us to hesitate and recline and not allowing our own outrage to call us to seek vengeance. We defile the honor of Jesus' name when we fail to trust in his justness. When we try to make it right or make up for what we cannot. When we fail to do as he has said and when we do as he has said not to do. When we do in his name what is not of faith or what puts us in his place 
as judge. Trusting Jesus means we rest in his perfect justice and trust in his truth for the honor of his name. In our war of morality in the world, we need nowhere else to turn but to him, the one who is just and the justifier of the one who has faith. And at the end of a very sobering chapter, we should all be considering whose honor am I living for? Whose name is the name proclaimed in my life, with my life, and through my life? May we as God's people, Christians, may we be a people who seek justice, who seek love, who seek truth, For the honor of his name alone. Let's pray.